verses 1 through 9. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, and as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you. And whatever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body before my burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Let's pray. God, we do ask that you would bless your word. She would honor your word. God, as it is preached, and you would give your people ears to hear and eyes to see. God, in the humility to bend our lives to what you show us in the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Ben and I are starting a new series this week called A Journey to the Cross as we head towards Easter. And I want you just to suppose for just a moment if you were a non-Christian and you came to St. Paul's Cathedral in London and you were eager to learn about the Christian faith, as you walked along Fleet Street and marveled at Sir Christopher Wren's architectural genius, you would first notice the huge golden cross that dominates the dome. After entering the cathedral and being overwhelmed with its majesty, you would begin to notice that the cathedral is in cruciform in the shape of a cross. Each side of the chapel has a table, and on the table there's a cross. As you begin to walk around and go down into the crypt, the tombs are engraved and embossed with a cross. The service begins, and shortly after, you look up and you see the beautiful stained glass, and you only notice the huge cross that's in the glass. The congregation rises, and the opening words of the song, Praise Him Who Died, of him who died upon the cross. And what follows, you soon begin to realize, is a holy communion. The focus, the death of Christ. The service ends with another hymn, the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Although the crowds begin to disappear, you notice a family going down front with their child. He's being baptized. And upon his baptism, his head is traced with a cross. You're puzzled. What's the great ordeal about the cross? You're almost shocked. Why would the cross be so important to Christianity? 
If you've ever read a book by the John Stott called A Cross of Christ, every religion, every belief center system has its symbol, it has its signpost. The Buddhist has the lotus flower, the Jew has the Star of David, the Marxist, the hammer and the sickle, the Nazi has the swastika, and the Christian has the cross. It doesn't seem strange to us, but it would have been strange in Jesus' day. The Romans perfected that tool, perfected it, bringing severe suffering, shame, and death. Yet it's used by God to bring hope and redemption and joy and peace and love, eternal happiness and glory. Paul himself says, May I never boast except in the cross of Christ. Luke 9, 23 says, it's the, daily, it's the daily journey of the Christian to take up their cross and follow Christ. Why? Why, why would God do this? 1 Corinthians gives us a hint. It says, God chooses the foolish things in the world to shame the wise. God chooses what is weak in the world to shame that which is strong. God chooses what is lowly and despised to shame that in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Psalms 8 and two, verse 2 says, Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. It'll be no different in this story at Bethany. God will use the most unlikely person, Mary, to do a wonderful thing. Hear God's Word, verses 1 and 2. It says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Him, that is, Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. You see, the reason there would have been an uproar with the people is Lazarus has not long been raised from the grave. This is what set into motion Palm Sunday. Lazarus' resurrection punctuates Christ's ministry. It gives validity to the divinity of Christ. And you can imagine the people and their excitement, no one had ever raised anyone from the dead. It causes the religious leaders of the day, though, to hit the panic button, right? They see the whole world going after Christ. They're so concerned with their titles and their status and their kingdom, and they're willing to commit double murder. We must kill Lazarus and we must kill Jesus. Oh, what we as people will do to protect our status, right? What we all will to do to protect our own kingdom. So Lazarus has been raised. And verse 3 says, And while he was at Bethany, that is Jesus, in the house of Simon the leper, as he reclining at the table, a woman comes with an alabaster flask of ointment, and she anoints him. You see, Bethany has a very special place in Jesus' heart. 
It's a little no-name place, a fringe place. But it's a place where he has a lot of special friends. It's a place where he finds a lot of comfort. It's somewhere he'd like to go and visit and say goodbye before he goes to the cross. I don't want you to miss Christ's humanity. He's just like us. He has friends. He has the place that he likes to go. I can remember my grandfather dying. He died in his house, and he was downstairs, and they had made a bed for him in front of his fireplace. And it's what he always used to do is just stoke the fireplace. If it got below 60, the fireplace was, was going. And it was there as a young kid that I watched him breathe his last, but it was the place he wanted to be. It's the people he wanted to be with. And so it is with Jesus in Bethany. It's a very special place to him. John tells us in John chapter 12, which is a parallel passage to this passage in Mark, that his closest friends live there and they're throwing him a dinner party. It's probably a party celebrating the resurrection of Lazarus. And it would be the kind of dinner that you would all like to be at. A leper that had been healed. A dead man that had been in the grave long enough to stink. And two women who loved Jesus very much. Can you imagine the conversations that night? Can you imagine just sitting there with Lazarus and saying, tell me, where, where did you go? Where were you at? What was it like? I can only imagine. But I don't want you to miss that they're fringe people. These are not front and center people. This is not the religious and the righteous. These are people no one would know. Jesus is polarizing, isn't he? To some, they want to celebrate, throw him a dinner, and for others, they want to kill him. They want to martyr him. They want to do away with him. You see the polarization in Jesus' name, the lion and the lamb. It is at this celebration dinner that Mary comes, a woman comes and anoints Christ as he reclines with his friends at the table. And John tells us that Mary did this great act of worship. She was celebrating Jesus as the resurrection and the life. And just as Samuel had come and anointed David king, so Mary comes and anoints Jesus as God's king, worshiping him. The passage tells us that the anointing is fitting for a king. 300 denarii is almost a year's wages that Mary brings and just pours out on Jesus. It's an act that is fit for a king's funeral, poured out in honor of Christ. One of the things that we as God's church need to learn from Mary is we should always be at Jesus' feet. As God's church and as God's people, we should always be at the feet of Christ. In the Scriptures, Mary is found there three times. One time in Luke 10, she's sitting at His feet. 
In John 11, she comes and falls at his feet. And then in John 12, she's anointing his feet. And the thing that's so unique about Mary is she doesn't worship Christ like Ananias and Sapphira. She doesn't hold back. She has no pretense. She's not like James and John. She's not looking for titles. She's not looking for recognition. She's just looking to savor Christ. She's just looking to give up everything to follow Him. Do I worship Jesus like that? Do you worship Jesus like Mary? Do we as God's church value Christ like that? This is so over the top. This act of worship is so over the top that those present begin to grumble and scold her. See, the taking down of her hair, that would have been non-acceptable in the Jewish culture. And it reminds me of David, when David comes before God, dancing before the ark in 2 Samuel 6. And it says that he dances so foolishly, leaping and cheering before the ark of the covenant, that his wife comes and rebukes him and says, What are you doing? You're a king. And if you read those scriptures, it hints that Michael never had children because of that. Mary's no scholar. She has no seminary degree. She has no seat among the Pharisees and the scribes. But she gets Jesus. She understands the treasure that Christ is. She understands His worth and His value. Do I? Do you? All throughout the pages of Scripture, it is those who are on the fringes that understand Jesus. Those who are blind are the ones that always see Him. Those that are outsiders are the ones that get to taste of His grace. They get to drink from the fountain of His mercy. The centurion at the cross. The thief on the cross. You ever thought about how much faith the thief on the cross had? He's on the cross. He looks over at Jesus on the cross, barely recognizable, dying, and says, You are my king. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. The tax collectors, the Canaanite woman, Those who are front and center never get Jesus. You know that? The people who you think would get Jesus never get Jesus. Those with titles, the insiders, the religious, they miss it. 
Think about Nicodemus. You can't get any more insider than him, and he just completely misses it. The rich young ruler just misses Jesus. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, it's always the fringe. It's always the most unexpected, unlikely person you think would ever understand who Christ is. You know, I pray that I would be a person who would be considered among the fringes. Those who would get the crumbs that fall from God's table of grace. But you know, if I'm honest, my heart wants to be front and center. I pray we're a church that values the fringe. I pray that we're a people that don't want to be front and center, but we want to be with Christ. We want to be at His feet. As I was reading and studying this text, one of the things that came to mind is the anointing of Christ, honoring Him as King, preparing Him for His death. God chose a woman, not the priest, not a man, but He chose a woman. The women are front and center at the cross. First to the tomb, it's the women. See, there are many in our culture who want you to think that Christianity devalues women, but actually Christ makes them front and center. Remember the story of Hannah? God gives her that son Samuel who brings his people back to him. Remember the story of Ruth? Preserves the lineage of Christ. And that wonderful story of Esther, right? See, that's what God does. He takes crosses, Roman crosses. He brings about redemption. He takes people who are on the fringe, the weak and the most unlikely, and He makes them front and center. Verse 5 says, There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And it says they scolded her. They scolded her. You understand what a grace it is to have the eyes to see and savor Christ? Do you understand what a grace that is? Do you understand what a curse it is to be blinded to that? What a curse it is to be blinded to the glory of Christ. To be blinded by your own greed and your own shabby pursuits of titles.
What a contrast. Two scandalous acts of worship. Mary and Judas. John tells us it was Judas was the one who spoke up about the money and pretense about the poor only because he wanted to steal some more money. But Mary, humble, Judas and the Pharisees proud. Mary seeing Christ as a Savior, the Pharisees and Judas seeing Him as a threat. Mary worshiping Christ, Judas desiring to murder Him. Mary longing to spend all in worship on Christ, Judas just wanting to get what he can for him. Mary gives up a year's wages. Judas betrays him for 30 pieces of silver. Love, devotion, worship, sacrifice, joy, hope, and life. But with Judas, it's despair and betrayal, suicide and death and misery. A humble caution to us as God's church. Using good things to cover up our ill intentions. Using blankets of good deeds to cover up the knife of betrayal. Cloaking our idolatry with good things doesn't make it worship. And Jesus comes in verse 6 and says, Leave her alone. It is a beautiful thing that she has done. You see, when King Jesus is on His throne and He's honored and He's worshipped by His people, the entire kingdom flourishes and the poor are never overlooked. You guys remember in Acts, Remember they set aside the deacons to care for the poor? You see, when God is on His throne and His people are worshiping Him, the poor are never overlooked. That should cause us as His church to say, do we love the poor? Do we love those on the fringe? If we don't, we're probably not worshiping Jesus. Mary has shown us clearly what it means to be a part of the people of God. Seeing and savoring and worshiping Jesus. Verse 9 tells us, that this act of worship will be told from sea to shining sea, from mountain peaks to valley floors, from continent to continent, in honor of her. You see, church, as we journey to the cross, I want you to understand that we, we serve a God who loves to use the foolish things of the world to shame the strong. He loves to use the fringe to build His kingdom. He loves to use a woman from a little town called Bethany 
that no one of us would have ever heard about had Christ not performed the resurrection of Lazarus. Do we as God's people, do we love front and center? Or do we love to be in the fringes? Let's pray. God, thank you for this passage. Thank you for Mary, God, and God, her love and her devotion to you as the King of kings and Lord of lords. God, thank you that in reality, even us who think we're front and center, God, are, are fringe. God, us who think that the world would fall apart if we were not in it, God, how foolish. God, would you help us as your people? Would you help us as Christ's Redeemer Church? Would you help us to see ourselves God, is those foolish things that God would use to bring about His kingdom here in Mobile. God, that we would consider it an honor as Your people to sit at Your feet. And God, Your feet are more valuable than a year's wages. God, Your honor and Your reputation is greater, much greater than ours. And God, if we as your church would just simply surrender all and give up everything and follow Jesus, God, that's where happiness and joy and life everlasting is found. But Lord, it is suicidal to portray Jesus for anything. It is suicidal, God, to hang on to our status. God, to cling to the things that this world tells us can make us something. And God, the story of Judas shows us that plainly. So God, teach us how to worship you in spirit and in truth for your glory and for your honor in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand as we